But tell me, devil, what about my film? The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which opens on, uh, what does that say? July 6, 1990. It did open and was a smash hit, launching the career of the most brilliant comedic actor of his generation, John Lovitz. <laughs> John Lovitz? Yeah. You mean that liar guy? It wasn't his only character. <laughs> hey, look, I can't allow that to happen, you know what I mean? Take me back, guardian devil. I want to live. I want to live. Oh, I want to live. Very well, Dice Man. I grant you your wish. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week, I'll be joining forces with Andrew Dick of rival podcast That Week in SNL for a fun crossover review of Season 15's infamous Andrew Dice Clay hosted episode with musical guests The Spanic Boys and Julie Cruz. You can connect with Andrew on Twitter at That Week in SNL. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you prefer to listen on. Your subscription helps us grow, and your support is greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Dice Clay. All right, everyone, welcome to the crossover event of the century. <laughs> it's that week in SNL after party. With me, your host, Andrew Dick. And I am also your host, John Murray. And this week, that week was May 12th, 1990, with episode 19 of season 15 of SNL with our host, Andrew Dice Clay, and musical guests, Julie Cruz and the Spanic Boys. So, here we are, crossover episode, finally. We've been talking about this for a while. Yeah. It, it took us a while to finally nail down the episode we wanted to do. And, and this is what we came up with eventually. Are, are we are we okay after watching the Andrew Dice Clay episode? Are, are we happy with the selection we got here? I don't know. This one's on me because I was super fussy about what era I wanted to talk about. But uh, actually having taken it in now, um, I think we'll have plenty to say. But I just don't think it was as remarkable as I was expecting it to be. Considering it's so infamous, I was thinking we were going to get something a little bit more potent. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple weird moments in, in the episode we're talking about. But uh, as it goes along, it's just pretty uh, innocuous all in all. It, it's it's really more mm-hmm. the the storm of controversy that, that followed it. Are you any fan of our host, Andrew Dice Clay? Have you seen any of his stand-up, uh, Ford Fairlane, any of his movies? Uh, well, you know, like 10-year-old me could have recited the nursery rhymes. Like, that went around the playground. So I am familiar with the character Andrew Dice Clay and and the really juvenile potty humor kind of stuff that, that he was putting out. But have I thought about him since? 
No, not really. But uh, yeah, around 1990, there was no way to not know who he was, even if you were only, you know, nine at the time. Right. Did you, uh, do you, do you believe you would watch this episode when it aired? Were you watching SNL uh, at this point? Well, no, I was only nine, so I don't think my folks had sanctioned the 1 a.m. bedtime at that point. <laughs> right. It was a season or two after this that I was allowed to watch it religiously. I know that I hadn't seen this one the first time it aired because my first update host was Kevin Nealon. So this is squarely in the Dennis Miller era, which means it predated me. Okay. But I had seen it like I, because, you know, you can find them online or, you know, whatever. I've I had tracked it down and watched it at some point over the last 20 years, but it had been a while. To what degree were you aware of of because I did some research about about Andrew Dice before this mm-hmm. and uh, I got to say, I was not aware that he is a Jewish guy. He is Andrew Dice Silverstein. <laughs> yes. Right, right. It truly is a uh, a character. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fact that came to my attention this morning when I was doing my show prep. Uh, it fits, though. It makes sense because I, I think anyone that really just stepped back and looked at it would understand this is too over the top and too on the nose for it not to be something that he's terribly aware of and intentionally leaning into. It It, it is definitely a character. There's no doubt about that. The fact that he's Jewish just... You know, that seems to fit, you know, finding your way into a career in stand up comedy. It just it seems like, OK, he found his niche. He found something that separates him from the pack and he he went with it. Who cares? You know, <laughs> ethnicities be damned. Yeah, I, I guess he had started doing like impressions of, of Travolta and, uh, you know, Elvis Presley and stuff. And, and that's sort of how the character uh, came to be. Right. It was in his repertoire, but it wasn't his persona. It was something that was part of his act, but it wasn't until that kind of started to become all encompassing. And that's what people were showing up to see that he decided, OK, this is my meal ticket right here. This is what I'm going to go with. And then, you know, he just got absorbed in it, sort of Stephen Colbert style. Are we supposed to take it as satire? I mean, I, to a certain degree, I'm, I'm kind of baffled. Are we supposed to be laughing with him? Like, are we supposed to be laughing with the character or at the character? It gets a little... See, that's what I've been struggling with. And that's what I've been trying to figure out some clever thing to say about that exact notion, because while it's obvious that he understands that he's playing a character, I don't know if most of his audience understood that at the time, I think they were just buying it hook, line and sinker as like, just like legitimate blue comedy. So because of that, because the audience wasn't in on the joke and he continued to roll with it without making himself more obviously the butt of his own jokes, like without calling attention to the fact that I understand this is ridiculous. So the ridiculous things I'm doing is part of the act and you're supposed to be laughing at the the character stupidity rather than the actual punchlines of the joke. If he had figured out how to craft the character to actually make a point, then I would call it brilliant. But I think what happened is he just realized, you know, there's a big segment of the population that eats up body humor. So I'm just going with that. So I don't consider it genius. I consider it opportunistic. Yeah. When he finally got picked up to be on SNL, obviously, uh, uh, most specifically, Nora Dunn uh, <laughs> was was not happy with, with the choice and decided to uh, boycott the episode uh, and, and perform on Comic Relief uh, that Saturday instead. Right. And also uh, musical guest Sinead, uh, Sinead O'Connor uh, also dropped out. 
which uh, just what a weird bit of programming that would have been. Sinead O'Connor? Sh- Sinead? <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, she prefers Sinead. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so weird because it doesn't have an H in it. It is S-I-N. Yeah. I think. Sir Sharon. And it's a, it's an Irish thing. It's an Irish thing. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm, I'm Irish myself, and I still don't get a, a lot of it myself. Uh, but I do got to point out what a weird bit of programming that would have been with Andrew Dice Clay and Sinead O'Connor as the musical guest. Like, why? Who? who is the audience for this episode? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, I'd like to know what was going through the mind of the booking agent when they tried to pair that together. There was no way that was going to fly. <laughs> and so I guess that's that's where a lot of the, the controversy of the episode sort of popped off was was Nora Dunn uh, deciding not to appear in the episode, which... Up to that point, and and even afterwards, I don't think any cast member has done has has like boycotted uh, an episode. Probably not with as much fanfare, right? Like she went ahead and did a whole media blitz to really like get ahead of it. Whereas other people that maybe aren't comfortable with an episode, they've bowed out quietly, you know, for personal mm-hmm. reasons or whatever. And the the show has respected that on occasion, but I don't think anyone's attempted to create a media circus the way that she did. And, and I think uh, it, it's John Lovitz who's was the most vocal about uh, <laughs> the, the fact of she didn't do that. She didn't go to Lauren and say, listen, I don't want to be a part of this right. episode. Um, I'm just going to sit it out. She didn't talk to anybody. She went straight to the media. Uh, yeah. And, and the ever dramatic Nora Dunn. <laughs> I think everybody felt a little bit like they were uh, thrown under the bus a bit, even if they agreed with it. And, and Lovitz definitely was uh, his take on it that she knew she was out the door. Basically, her, her contract was up at the end of the season. We are only, mm-hmm. you know, this is the penultimate episode of the season. So uh, he felt like she was just trying to drum up some attention for herself before she uh, was out of the show. And and this was the best way to do it. When we were discussing this episode on Twitter, uh, we we were also able to discuss a little bit of the the episode with a Whitney Brown uh, writer and cast member Mm -hmm. uh, at this time. And he said he he didn't really stand with Lovitz's take on it. Uh, he, He said that they, nor was not the only one that was, not happy about the situation. Sure. And uh, it goes both ways. I I imagine it must've been not a fun week, but also it's SNL. It's a show that's written and you can control Andrew Dice Clay. I mean, he's not going to just go off the grid. They've had controversial hosts before. Right. Yeah. yeah. You've had Sam Kinison and, and, and other people and right, right. even up until uh, modern day with, uh, with with Trump. I mean, you can control the episode because you can write it. Um, so I'm sure she certainly wasn't the only one with strong feelings about it, but she was the only one that decided that she was going to create an untenable situation for so many people at the show. And I don't... Uh, disagree with Lovett's take personally. Like I, I don't think that it's as calculated as maybe he makes it out to be. Um, but I think that she's just the sort of person that is willing to go off and do something that kind of catastrophic without thinking about what the consequences are for the people around her. And I think mm. that's where maybe, you know, she rubbed Lovett's the wrong way. Um, but you know, who could ever say what a person's motivations are? All I know is, uh, 
what we ended up with felt very cautious. It felt like everyone at the show was so aware of how many people at the show maybe weren't fully invested and maybe just weren't really on board with it, that it's trying to wink and smile at it and put it front and center so that we can all kind of embrace it. I just don't know how well that worked. And I think that a lot of that has to be laid at the feet of Nora Dunn because it didn't have to be this big of a deal. It could have just been, you know, a comedian coming to do the show and we just pepper it however we can that particular weekend. And it was much more awkward, I think, as a result. And that's that's sort of the (laughs) sort of what I take away from the whole thing yeah it it, the controversy definitely shapes the episode rather than it just being a host coming in to do an episode Mm -hmm. but if she hadn't got all worked up that's all it would have been Mm -hmm. right like it would have just been another episode of snl and there was nothing in the show that anyone can really point at and say oh this just crosses the line this is just so horrible it would have been perfectly fine but as it stands now the show had to factor in how everybody in the country was now weighing in on it and had very, you know, heightened opinions and expectations of the show. And they had to now write around that sort of built in audience bias. And I don't think it helped. So thank you, Nora Dunn. <laughs> I, well, you know, it adds an, an interesting flavor to the episode. Um, so, so let's get right into it with our, our cold open guardian devil, uh, which is a, uh, a wonderful life spoof, uh, where where we begin with Andrew Dice Clay out on the bridge. He's he's very distraught about the controversy surrounding the episode that week, and uh, he, he wishes he's never been born. And John Lovitz, as the devil, shows up and shows him what the episode would have been like had he not been born. And immediately, from frame one, they throw Nora Dunn. Under the bus, much like she did to them. <laughs> now they're they're firing right back. Yeah, because the first thing you see is the Pat Stevens show will not be seen tonight. And then you get spinning newspapers about the, the controversy. And then you finally see Andrew Dice Clay. Why is this happening to me? All this fuss over one stinking show. I never meant to hurt nobody. <laughs> Look at me. I'm crying like a chick. That's it. There's no point in going on anymore. The dice man's checking out. I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> it. I mean, it, this one's kind of fun. It, it's it's one of the better pieces of the night that addresses the controversy. I feel that they. I, I'd like. I, I mean, I like the It's a Wonderful Life anyways, and, and the show has is, is mined that movie for uh, some pretty funny parodies before. So right. uh, this whole idea of, of what the show would have been like is, is a pretty fun idea, uh, specifically what gets me and, and what I immediately think of when I think of this episode is um, that the host would have been Frank Zappa, which is portrayed by Dana Carvey. <laughs> As a ranting uh, maniac who who went on a 70-minute tirade that got the show (laughs) immediately canceled. This is the show you were supposed to host. But because you were never born, Frank Zappa was booked instead. (laughs) Oh, my God. Tell me about it. Zappa went on an anti-censorship rant 
for about 70 minutes. But with the thought police in Washington watching us on their telescreens, <laughs> Big Brother Bush and his assistant Reich Marshal Tipper will indubitably prevail and freedom of speech will go the way of eight-track tapes. The ratings plummeted and led to the immediate cancellation of the show. That's yeah, horrible. That's a good beat. Are, are you That's any fan of, uh, of Frank Zappa? No, no, not as such, but I could certainly understand how he could derail an episode of SNL. So <laughs> I think, you know, it, it was a, a fitting gag to to include. Uh, yeah, this this was working. I thought that this was pretty sharp, too. It did what it had to do in getting out in front of it. You know, everyone's trying to figure out how they're going to comment on it and how they're going to put people at ease. And I just I feel like this was just as smart a premise as they could have really come up with to try and just frame what they're hoping to do with the show. Like just, you know, calm down. This it's, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> no one needs to jump off any bridges. Let's just have some fun. And uh, I feel like that's what I walked away from it with. So I, I think it worked. I think it did what it was supposed to do, at least for me. Right. I, I still think, uh, I mean, I don't think the show has ever attacked one of its cast members uh, as hard as it does in this episode. And the mm-hmm. fact that had the episode gone on as planned, uh, Nora Dunn would have died under a stack of <laughs> yes. Sinead O'Connor's <laughs> amplifiers. Mm-hmm. It's just like, wow. I wonder if that's the writing staff saying, hey, you know what? We're not really in a great position because of all the silliness that you drummed up. So we're going to have a little bit of fun with it. I feel like it was kind of their, you know, passive aggressive way of maybe saying, Hey, Nora, not cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that was my read on it. Oh yeah. no. If, if, if SNL can do uh, attack somebody passive aggressively, you can bet they're going to do it. And, uh, sure. Here, yeah. here we go. That's, that's what you get moving on into the, the monologue. Th- this starts pretty interestingly because dice comes out and, he just basically says, like, how you doing? Like, that's all I can say tonight. How you doing? <laughs> right. And then immediately up in, in the, the top rows, uh, a, a chant breaks out. You know, I, I'll tell you something. Some of you might recognize this particular jacket because, you see, the only other time I wore this jacket. All right, snaphead, sit down, shut your mouth and pay attention. All right. <laughs> That's the type of guy that hangs out in this men's room to smell other people's crap all day long. Oh, loosen up, man. Just because they don't want to go out with your pal don't mean I don't dig you. You did very good. Now go home and tell dad what a man you are. Apparently, a, uh, a bunch of protesters, uh, I guess gay protesters, uh, made it into the building and uh, started chanting at him, mm-hmm. which is, uh, man, one of the more unique uh, things this episode brings. Never, never seen the audience uh, heckle somebody like that during their monologue. It's like, whoa. Yeah, I think that's why they were so on guard when Trump hosted. They were expecting this kind of level of hysteria. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, they don't usually make it through or have the guts to derail the show. But these guys went for it. And I think uh, Clay handled it like a pro. He was uh, right there with the the jabs. I guess they're pretty lame, though. It's like, oh, these are people that hang around in bathrooms to smell other people's crap. Like, what? Well, I guess let me let me qualify that. I'm not necessarily saying... I'm I'm not saying that the actual 
handling of the hecklers was the funniest. What I'm saying is he didn't skip a beat. It's not like he like stood there like a deer in headlights thinking, okay, we're on live TV. I had some material that I needed to jump into and now I'm like, I'm just completely bewildered and off keel. It, it, that didn't happen. That's what I mean. Like he was just right there ready to put them back in their box so that he can get back to his material. And he just was able to flow through that very competently. And I, I got to respect that because that's something that that is a skill that comedians need to learn. And when they show their prowess and control an audience the way that he was able to do there, uh, you know, I, I think there's some merit in the skill, if nothing else. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But the, the comebacks were like, oh, boy, come on, man. I was like, just because I don't dig you or just because I don't want to go out with you doesn't mean I don't dig you. Like, <laughs> we can't be friends. <laughs> what? But you know what? I come on. I, I got to admit, I was chuckling. I was chuckling. I I enjoyed because he came out, he hadn't said anything offensive yet. Sure, he said plenty of offensive things in his career. But at that moment on the SNL stage, there was absolutely no reason to not give him the benefit of the doubt and see what he was going to bring to the stage. Mm. So I'm on his side at this point. Like, I'm saying, okay, win me over. Make me a believer. Show me what you can do here. Because this whole episode was supposed to be an opportunity for him to repair his public image and transfer that persona into something a little bit more marketable and screen worthy, right? Like this was a very calculated opportunity for him to step back from the edge and become more mainstream. Yeah, we are. Uh, he is here pimping the adventures of Ford Fairlane. A- exactly. So I wanted to see how deftly he was going to be able to maneuver that. And I, I just, I really wanted to see what he wanted to tell us. So, when the heckler started, I'm like, no, 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 come on. This is lame. Like, I understand. I understand everybody's worked up, but give the guy a chance to set the tone for the show. That's very important. I want to see it. So when he was able to maneuver around it and get right back into it without missing a beat, that to me was a win for what it's worth. Now, what about the jokes he actually told afterwards? So here's the thing about me, and it's something that may not be super apparent on my podcast because I work very hard to walk a a very straight and narrow line and, you know, keep the the actual content of the show very accessible and family friendly, but I am not easily offended. I am not someone that feels like because I don't agree with what someone's saying that I can't appreciate the humor in it or look at the performance merit of it, or just try and take it on the terms that it was intended and try and have some fun with it. There's very little that can throw me off that way. Mm -hmm. So I just want to hear a joke and see if it's well-crafted, well-delivered and can kind of take me by surprise. And I will admit there was a couple moments in this monologue that I thought, yeah, that was well done. This isn't what the kind of comedy that I would seek out, but I had fun with the monologue and I was surprised that I did. Hmm. Not that it isn't juvenile and tasteless, but I still had fun with it. I'm, I'm able to divorce myself of the, the social detriment that comes from actually believing these kind of sentiments. I can divorce myself from that and just say, okay, well, you know, is that well-crafted or well-delivered? And there was a couple moments where he got me. So I'm, <laughs> I was good with it. I mean, I mean, was it the, the, the time that he talked to the guy in the audience with his girlfriend? No, that's pretty standard fare. And I'm pretty sure that guy was a plant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, No, no, that's really run of the mill. This wasn't groundbreaking stuff, but it was fun. Because I I think, actually, 
my my thing is i think that the whole wedding talking to the guy in the audience bit like that goes over all right but then he rolls into a piece of he was waiting for the bus mm. and the bus <laughs> didn't come so he starts to walk and a mugger shows up and uh he's like i don't carry a wallet but i carry a gun so now they're both walking down and eventually it's revealed that the mugger is the bus driver and then it ends like okay that's a funny enough reveal right right, right. and then it's like oh and i was on my lunch break and he, and even the crowd's like ooh wait what what and he's like okay all right let's get yeah. it he totally undercut the punchline right like he rushed into it and tried to like really sting it but nobody was expecting it and it wasn't a strong punchline so yes that bombed but what he was trying to do there was say, when I try to do mainstream topical type of comedy, this is what you're going to get, mm-hmm. right? Like this is him trying to do typical stand-up comedian shtick. But I see, I feel, it feels too much like still his. Like I felt like they really should, if they wanted to do that idea, it really should have been lame hacky jokes yes. and it's like this is what you get when you undercut me and that's why it that wasn't the best part of the monologue it really didn't work i i can agree with that i enjoyed the first part of it where he's like you know what i don't carry a wallet but i carry a gun and now me and him are walking down the street and you know like he had yeah. a good flow and that was a, a good little reveal that he like won over the scumbag and now they're buds and they're cruising towards the show like there was a bit there that i was amused by the overall piece didn't work but it had its moments i'm not trying to say that this was stunning or one for the books i'm just saying that as we moved through it there were a handful of moments where i caught myself grinning and saying you know that's that is dumb but okay i'm on board i I, i'm I'm enjoying this and i was surprised that i didn't hate it Mm. that's actually i think my takeaway i was expecting this to be just you know, raunchy with nothing redeeming as far as the actual comedic merit of it. And I was surprised that I was grinning as much as I did. Okay. Fair enough. I I think you might've enjoyed it a bit more than I did, but so, uh, moving along, we've got our first sketch of the night, the Diceman employment agency (laughs) where, uh, uh, the Diceman runs an agency hiring folks for various illegal deeds. Things are hurting all over. Now I see you got a wife, you got two kids, Maybe experiencing a little financial crunch. Oh, yes. Kids are very expensive. Yeah, but they're worth it, aren't they? Oh, yes. Aren't they something? Shut up, stupid. Would you please? (laughs) How does 10,000 a week sound, huh? Oh, that's more than I made as a teacher. That's a lot more. What is it? What is it? Well, looking here at your aptitude and experience, it's my belief that you would make um, an excellent crack dealer. (laughs) Me? A couple positions open up this morning. Uh, what? Well, I, 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 I don't know about that. Uh, no, it's it's tempting. Very tempting. What do you think of this uh, one? Don't you have something else up there? Uh, this is where the show reminded me that we're still in an era where long, drawn-out sketches that kind of meander and have too much going on are common fare at SNL. Mm. So this was not great. Uh, it had a kernel of a good premise, but it lasted too long. It had too many diversions. It just didn't, it didn't really come together in any kind of satisfying way or have a really good joke underpinning it. Yeah. It's just the idea of, yeah, okay, well, uh, underworld types need jobs too. So there's got to be someone to service that. But yeah, there was a whole lot of screen time devoted to 
you know, what, what job would you like? You want to be a crack dealer? You want to be a prostitute? You want to be a, you know, a button guy? Uh, yeah, I just didn't need it. Didn't, or I didn't need this much of it, I guess. Right. I, I got one decent laugh where he, he's been talking to Kevin Nealon, who's a former teacher, and he's the one who's like, okay, I got a job for you, crack dealer, or lookout, uh, car stereo fencer. And then he gets a call, and then he, he turns over to Kevin and is like, <laughs> your today's your lucky day. day. Right, How right, do you right, feel yeah. about violence? Uh, which which got a good chuckle out of me. Yeah. Uh, Mike Myers comes in as a mobster who, who uh, is grilling the Dice Man for some money in one of the most uh, absurd moments of the night because Mike comes in and tries to sell the hell out of this. <laughs> sure. To what end, I don't know, but he's he's going for it in a dramatic beat in this sketch that makes absolutely no sense. Right. And that's where we get into too much going on, meandering, and pointless. Like, okay, so what? what's... What's the reason why we needed to have this diversion of him getting accosted by people that are essentially doing the work that he's enabling? Like he's putting people on the street to do this exact work and now he's the victim of it. Is there something that it's trying to say there? Is there some way to bring that to a head where we get the point of why we had to see this? That didn't happen. No. So it ends with, yeah, with Victoria Jackson walking in and he's like, okay, you're going to be a prostitute. And then again, with the, the rambling nature of the sketch, we, we cut to some sort of tag at the end uh, with, with TV guide cheers and jeers. Hmm. And uh, it's like, okay, SNL created a sexist employment agency sketch. What's next? A, a skit uh, glorifying Hitler. So we see Dana Carvey as Hitler uh, riffing right. on his, like, ain't that special? And I'm going to pump you up. And. <laughs> It's just like, okay, what do we, what was that? That really felt like a 3 a.m. fever dream of a sketch. Right. This is the show being very cautious and feeling like they always need to be aware and commenting on the state of the conversation around the show. Mm-hmm. They're they're feeling like they need to qualify every sketch with a there's no reason to critique us because, you know, we can kind of have fun with the criticism that we often get or what we expect to get from this. So, you know, we're kind of ahead of it. So it's cool. You know, we're we're all just having fun here. It just feels a little forced and a little tacked on and again, just didn't really make me more invested in what I'm seeing at this point. Right. Yeah. Moving along, we've got cooking with the anal retentive chef. Sure. It's the fifth and last time for uh, Phil Hartman's uh, Eugene character. Right. And, and uh, th- this time he, he welcomes on his mother to help uh, make a lady finger cake. Hello, Eugene. Please call me Jane, mother. Well, if that's what you want, it's your show, isn't it? Yes, it is. And welcome to it. Yes. This must be very exciting for you. You've never been on a television show. Well, actually, I don't care for TV. We liked Ed Sullivan, but they took him off. You know, very bad. Well, we always have fun on this show, don't we? Yes. And today we're preparing a special Mother's Day ladyfinger cake. Now, we have our platter of ladyfingers. And let's turn it this way, yes. shall we? Yes. So good. the ladyfingers are parallel. Lovely, yes. And, of course, we have a rich brown chocolate mousse. Oh. oh. With just a dollop of mousse on yes. the ball. <laughs> the edge bad. of the ball. Fantastic. So we don't want to start our show with a mess, do we? So let's just wipe that off. Yes, and there we go. There, now mm-hmm. it's clean. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those sketches that I feel is is in a certain genre of SNL sketch that that is the sketch that never begins. Okay, 
in a sense, because he is a cook. He's an anal retentive cook. So the whole gang. Oh, I is, see. It's all like we never get to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all diversions. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's all about, uh, oh, wait, that's not right. That's not even that. Oh, there's a little smudge there. OK, now we got to put this away. Usually I enjoy these, but I, I think, like I said, this is the last time they've done it or will do it. And it, I think the idea of having Jan Hooks as the mother come in should have been a better basis for more ideas to, to this sketch, but it, it never really gets there. They, they kind of mm. have a, a moment between each other where they're, they're kind of, you know, mad at each other, but yeah, I, I, I really felt like this should have explored more. I think I could see what they were reaching for and you're right. They never got there, but I think first off, this is uh, another episode in a long line of celebrated Mother's Day's episodes. You know, SNL always has to have some Mother's Day content. I think that's what this was. They're saying, let's take one of our tried and true recurring sketches and let's repurpose it as our Mother's Day outing for the show. Since we're not going to have many other Mother's Day-esque vehicles in this particular Mother's Day show, let's do it with this one. Right, right. And I think the idea was let's explore that unresolved conflict that often exists with grown children and their parents where they're not necessarily at ease and there's some baggage or some history there, or they, you know, learn some truth about the nature of their parents' relationship and it kind of puts them off. And, you know, kids can get weird around family or just people in general. Like you are who you are in your real life. And then you go back home for, Christmas or whatever, and all of that stuff sort of bubbles out a little bit. I'm wondering if this is kind of a comment on that. He's got his show, he's got his own little world here, but you bring his mom into it, and there's going to be conflict, right? and that's going to end up bubbling over by the end of it. I just feel like it moved kind of slow, and they didn't necessarily set the table to let us know that that's where they wanted to go with it. So as they're kind of starting to barb at each other, you're just kind of, you're just trying to keep up. You're not really like in on why this should be funny to watch uh yeah so it wasn't really working for me yeah i mean phil and and jan are always wonderful together so sure it's still watchable and and they're still doing Mm -hmm. a good job but yeah i I really wish there was something something more here it's just way too wandering yeah i would never fault the performances I just don't think that the whole idea of anal retention is exceptionally rife for comedy, right? Like, I just feel like you have, again, a really long sketch where once you're kind of in on the idea, like, okay, yeah, he's just so focused on the minutia that he's never going to get the point. I don't think that carries this much screen time, right? but that that was true of so much of SNL in this era. So oh, God, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm going to put that criticism aside and say that could be applied to almost every sketch we're going to see tonight, <laughs> but <laughs> I, know, I was going to say it only gets worse. Uh, towards yeah, the back end. This sketch didn't quite win me over because I don't think it it really had a clear focus on what it was trying to say there by the end. All right. Well, uh, moving on, we've got uh, the first of our, our two musical guests. We got the Spanish Boys with the song Keep on Walking. The father and son duo of Tom and Ian Spanik. I was very surprised. I thought the name 
Hispanic boys would just come from them being Hispanic. <laughs> but nope. Yep. <laughs> An honest mistake. Two a father and son named Hispanic. <laughs> They're as white bread as they come. Yeah. Milwaukee boys, I believe. So yeah. yeah. Uh couldn't be further from Spanish music. Uh this is what, Rockabilly? How would we peg this? What is this? I, I wrote down country blues tinged rockabilly pop yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. I mean, there was, there was nothing flamboyant about this performance. It was a stripped down stage. Like they didn't even, this is a small time act. So it's not like they brought in any great set or had any great production behind it. It was the fully lit music stage, really nothing there except them and their band getting through a song, feeling probably pretty cool to be on SNL (laughs) last minute. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. It's not bad. It's, it's all right. It's kind of, um, I would say like, Los Lobos or something. Yeah. It, it's yeah. it's certainly something I believe my father would have really enjoyed back in 1990. <laughs> sure. Would have been really, really into the Hispanic boys if he knew uh, they were around. Yeah. Now, there's a reason why neither of us really knew about them prior to watching the episode. This isn't an A-list act with legs here. This is kind of their 15 minutes that we're witnessing here. And I'm, I think it's cool for them. But yeah, it, it was a, it was a small time act that was available to fill in last minute. And it's cool that they were able to fly out to New York and make it happen. Yeah. I really wonder how that whole, uh, how that happened. I mean, I I can, I can shed a little bit of light on that. Oh yeah. It was all G Smith. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the guitarist, the band leader at the time, G Smith, uh, he was turned on to them. He thought they were awesome. He was trying to pitch them to Lorne for several months and Hey, musical act drops out last minute. Maybe we should give these guys a call. So that's how that happened. Holy he crap. was just there at the right time to be able to pitch him when they needed a fill-in. Nice. Good digging, John. Yeah, I do my homework. <laughs> All right. Uh, up next, we got Weekend Update with Dennis Miller. Right. So I've, I've dis- discussed this with my co-host, Timmy, before when we, we covered an episode of... Uh, of this time frame with Dennis Miller, are are you able to disassociate yourself from the Dennis Miller of of today and and go back to the more uh, gregarious, uh, <laughs> less uh, I don't know how to really put it into words of how Dennis Miller is in in 2018 in the last decade or so. But well, let me let me relieve you of this burden. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, my superpower is really not caring about people's personal politics or not letting anything get in the way of whether I find something Mm -hmm. amusing. Um, I have no problem with Dennis Miller. Like I do know his politics and they don't necessarily align with my personal ideology, but uh, I could care less about any of that. I don't tune in to watch his talking head segments on the, the cable news shows or whatever. Like it's just that version of Dennis Miller has no bearing on me or how I take this episode. Uh, this was a pretty typical outing for him, as far as I could tell. Uh, had no reason to dislike it. It was a little fumbly. It wasn't spectacular. It was a little vintagey in how many pictures they just goof on. Like, here's right. a picture, and we're going to pretend that we misunderstand what it means. That was a, a classic, oh. like dating all the way back to Chevy. And uh, they, they're still going heavy on it here. I really do not like those <laughs> jokes. Especially the one with, I, I couldn't pinpoint who the guy with the mustache that they keep on cracking on him as Gallagher. Right, right. And there's one about, like, somebody has, like, their hand, like, sort of close to their chest, and it's, like, about giving himself a titty twister, and it's like, <laughs> oh, man. I mean, really, I think that the, for a while, the discussion around Dennis Miller was was how um, 
he, he kind of moved Weekend Update um, past that kind of cheap setup punchline, goofy pitcher joke uh, type of thing. But you watch some of them and go, nope, that's that's about 80% of what it is. Yeah, I wonder if he gets more credit because there were little pockets of really sharp writing during his time at the desk. So there is some memorable stuff that isn't in that vein, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. It's just, mm-hmm. there was other things that people could latch onto and say, Hey, that's actually pretty cool to see that on weekend update. Are we on the verge of a new era? But I think that's just someone trying to come up with a headline more than anything. This, this is, this feels like weekend update. <laughs> I'm glad that by the time we get to Norm McDonald and then into uh, Tina Fey's era, a lot of that is brushed aside. I, I do like yeah. that we're not still in that place, but watching this just it it brought me back to the time frame, and I, I do kind of like seeing as corny as they are, and as much as you're never going to get more than just a, a tepid little chuckle out of them, uh, <laughs> it was still just neat to see those setups because it isn't something that we see that often. So I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't age well, but when I see it just for nostalgic purposes, I can get a little bit of amusement out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think they still use photos as jokes, but they're more like punchlines. They, they'll hit you with right. the photo as the punchline rather than here's a picture and we've, you know, we've, we've crafted a joke. We've misunderstood it. Yeah. And typically now it's a Photoshop thing, right? Like yeah, they're, yeah. they're using the, the heads up visual to make a joke, but it's not the same setup as this at all. Uh, yeah. This is old timey before you could actually doctor a photo inside of a week to get it on air. You just had to clip it out of the newspaper and hope for the best. Uh, Yeah, this wasn't spectacular. He had a few good moments, but a lot of the jokes were just really standard fare. Just don't age well because the politics of the time, you know, you're not going to be able to keep up with some of the things that were relevant then. Well, I feel his his biggest missed uh, opportunity here is, and you talked about some of the the divergent monologues he would go on sometimes as as being sort of the, the more important. Uh, part of his tenure and he does one of the uh, those here which is sort of I, I wrote it down as the pressure in the room monologue right right that eventually in true dennis miller fashion breaks down into some weird obscure reference to the tv show hunter <laughs> that died with me and died with the audience too like i yeah. think everybody was on board he's like okay there's an elephant in the room and we're all a little bit uptight right, right. and it's just like somebody broke up with somebody on this television show and everybody's like oh okay <laughs> hey 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 wait a second there's something wrong here tonight i think we can all feel it There's a pressure in the room that I'm not used to. And I think it's obviously due to the events of this week. And I think until somebody speaks to those events, this pressure is going to remain untapped. And well, okay, I'll go out on the line. I'll be the one to talk about it. It's obvious we're all feeling a little uptight because Stephanie Kramer is left hunter. (laughs) But if we are any kind of human beings, we will get on with the business of living. Because that's the way Sergeant D.D. McCall would have wanted it. <laughs> and, little thespian thing there. Pepsi said. See, I might, I might be the only person in the world that actually thought that was really good and deserved a better reaction from the audience. I don't think he he exited it gracefully, right? Like it did kind of fizzle and then he had to kind of laugh at his own joke to let the audience know, okay, we're done with that. You know, a little bit of theater there for you or whatever, but the actual joke itself of taking the controversy 
and or making everyone think that you're about to address the controversy and then no the only pressing thing on your mind that you feel is so urgent that it needs to be dealt with at the update desk is some character leaving this show i thought that that was that was fun yeah fair enough the problem is who who's watched hunter in the last 30 years like yeah it didn't even seem like the the audience knew what the hell they were talking he was (laughs) talking about and it's like that was a show happening then yeah but take that same joke and then insert a comedy or a sitcom or something where you know it's a touchstone to our time where everyone's going to be able to instantly know it could have been like a friend's reference exactly in that week it probably made sense uh, did he stumble out of it and lose the audience there at the end? Absolutely. <laughs> did he then awkwardly try to laugh at his own joke and get back into it and not really win the audience back? But I thought the underlying joke could have been good if it had worked out better. <laughs> mm. uh, so let's move on to our correspondence. Uh, we've got John Lovitz as annoying man with the annoying sympathy. Thank you. Don't don't don't. Maybe my favorite moment of the show. Mm. I love this. Fair enough. You know what? I love John Lovitz. I'll say it. The guy is a weirdo, but on (laughs) SNL, he just worked. (laughs) There's just something so funny about what he can do with this kind of stuff. He doesn't say anything. There's hardly a word in the whole piece until the end where he does like his very low, you know, theatrical voice there or whatever to to exit the piece. I love you. Yes. There's nothing to it other than him just looking absolutely brain damaged and being obnoxious. And then they have a fun little gag where he pops a zit on his face to give them that (laughs) gross out moment. It's childish. It's stupid. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, Also, we get David Spade as Michael J. Fox. I believe maybe the very first time that David Spade is making an on-screen appearance uh, on SNL. And now he's on location in the Philippines. Michael, what are you doing down there? Hey, Dennis, uh, I'm doing casualties of war, three, two, three, and four, back to back. Sounds like a lot of work, Mike. Uh, so you've got Future 3 coming out now. I remember in the second one you played three characters other than yourself. What's going to happen in this one? Oh, hey, Dennis, this one's even better. You know, I play 14 different characters, including a, uh, a dog in a chair. It's going to be a real stretch. Sounds great. Hey, hey, Mike. Give us a scene from Casualties 2, Ben. Oh, yeah, you want a little taste? Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Sarge, um... (laughs) What are we doing here exactly, uh? I think this is his fourth round of auditions, because he was already on the writing staff. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is really him getting a little bit of live screen time that is immediately parlayed into him becoming a featured player. So I feel like this is probably what won him the gig. That's my, you know, uninformed assumption on it, but I loved it. I thought that he really had Michael J. Fox pegged there. Oh, I mean, he doesn't really do impressions at all, 
But he was born to do that impression. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. And I, I was so enamored with just the whole cadence and, and just everything about it that I, I didn't fully catch what they were talking about. It's also very quick, but I, I think the concept is that he had just come off of filming Back to the Future 2 and 3 mm-hmm. back to back. So now he's like filming Casualties of War 2, 3, and 4, <laughs> where like one one of the movies he's playing a chair, I think I picked up in there. What? Oh, no, I, maybe, but... You might be overthinking it a little bit. I think the whole joke here is Michael J. Fox, he's in teen movies, right? Like lighthearted, comedic fare. And so to put him in gritty Vietnam War era material, how is someone with his delivery and his cadence and his mannerisms, how does that translate to dark apocalypse now level type of drama? It doesn't. <laughs> it comes off, you know, as corny as it, it does in this piece. Right. And I think that's that's really the whole joke. So that that's at least what I took away from it, which I thought was, you know, fun. Fun use of the Michael J. Fox impression. Yeah, not bad. And uh, yeah, overall, weekend update, eh, not bad. Yep. Not bad. And for what it's worth, I think Dennis Miller actually probably was the, the weakest link in the whole thing. Like, he didn't do anything terrible, but. But he had enough fumbles and he lost the energy enough times and the material was lackluster enough that he never really got me there. But the features were both fantastic. So for that, definitely a win. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, you want to you find we're taking a little break, kind of recharge a little bit. We can do that. I, I want to know what music you're going to insert. Oh, <laughs> that's the best part of your podcast. Oh, that's the best part. Of the- <laughs> yeah. What your interlude music's going to be. All right, ready to move into the back half here? Uh, that's, that's a little scandalous, but okay. Ooh, hey now. <laughs> yeah, I'm good when you're good. All right, well, moving on, we've got Dad, What's Sex? An NBC after-school special where the Dice Man lays out the, the concept of sex to his son, as played by Mike Myers, in terms that must be censored by the network. Uh, except for that one time where they they missed uh, missed Poon Tang. Yeah, that was some <laughs> that made it through. Bad bad button How do timing. I know when I'm ready. Oh, you'll know. Pretty soon you'll be getting some pubes. Next thing you know, you'll pop a boinger or two. You know, and you're gonna be thinking about giving someone that nice baloney pony. You know what I said? No way. Hey, look, 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 Timmy, Timmy, come on, you're my kid, right? Don't feel pressure. When you're ready for Poontang, we'll be ready for you. It will? Oh, yeah, and remember, um, you have to act Did this really have to be censored? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, Poontang, is that, is that so risque at one o'clock in the morning that we care? Right, and I think, I mean, they get away with honeypot, and I believe the other word is supposed to be... 
Yeah, no, I could I could kind of understand why the sensors might jump all over that. But this sketch could have been way more amusing if it didn't have that. That did not service the sketch. It didn't make things funnier because sometimes you bleep something and the the fun of it is having to use your imagination to fill in the gaps. But in this case, no, it just pulls you out of it immediately. Well, and it's so weird because it, it's a sketch that that plays differently for the audience in the studio and the audience at home because I I don't think they're not getting the ducked audio right. thing there. Yeah, they're eating it up. They're hooting and hollering. So that's why I kind of feel like the the silence, like it, it isn't even a bleep. It is they just cut the audio right out, and you feel like there's a technical problem watching the sketch. Uh, I just I feel like it can't. I don't feel it can overcome that. I feel like that's too much of a hindrance to keeping pace with the sketch for me to be invested. So uh, I liked it. I liked the idea of a dad giving just horrible birds and bees kind of advice to their innocent child who just needs to be shepherded and guided in a wholesome direction. And he's not capable of it. I think that's a great setup for a sketch and a perfect vehicle for Andrew Dice Clay. So there was a lot that could have worked here and the, the ducking killed it for me. Yeah. And again, the, the sketch kind of wanders because af- after all of that, we get Phil Hartman as, as a guy from Planned Parenthood who's taken umbrage with, with some of the terminology. <laughs> right. Uh, some of it's kind of fun. Uh, you know, he would have preferred instead honeypot, the vertical smile, which, <laughs> right. uh, really really got me uh but again it's it's just too many it's just uh, too many ideas because then after that we go right back to another iteration of like the tv guide cheers and jeers right right where it's like this time it's cheers for snl for for their you know progressive uh, sex talk sketch but then they haven't seen it and then they've been tricked and it yeah Nope. It's like, what, what? Cheers to Saturday Night Live for a skit in which a father thoughtfully explains sex to his son. Although we didn't see the skit, we feel, wait a minute, we were tricked. Cheers to Saturday Night Live. Cheers. Yeah, that, that definitely wasn't working. Um I did like the Phil Hartman stuff, to be perfectly honest. I, I think that that is a, a clever way to escalate that sketch because there wasn't really anywhere for the sketch to go, right? You're giving the son the talk. It's immediately understood that, okay, you just aren't capable of giving him the direction he needs. Great. That's that's fun. Let's have a little bit of fun with that. But to then have you know a stuffy guy in a suit who you think is going to be speaking in you know very clinical appropriate terms for him to sort of up the ante and be even more raunchy than andrew dice clay in his leather jacket again i think i I think conceptually there was a lot working for this guy i definitely didn't need the tv guide stuff that was stupid and that's again the show trying to wink and say it's okay guys we can have a little bit of raunchy fun because it's just a joke um so that again i i just felt tonally was awkward but i liked everything before that i just i those bleeps were what was really pulling me out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't quite work for me either. Uh, speaking of things that, man, I wish they worked better than they actually do. It's, it's talk radio. <laughs> uh, uh, we got Kevin Nealon as a DJ who consistently and constantly interrupts the music that he's playing with, with tiny updates 
about the weather and and DJ on rambling fire. on all music all the time. WPLI. Wake up, New York! Wake up! Let's get the fire going into that coffee. You're late for work. 87 degrees in the city. Stay cool if you can. I'm Tony Trailer at WPLI with all music all the time. 25 on the downside of eight. From his LP Stormfront. And Billy Joel, let's have a listen. I man, I like this idea in concept. And then once they do it, 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 it really just, man, it becomes like an SNL sketch from the early 90s where it's just we were hitting that joke and then we're hitting that joke and then we're hitting that, hitting it, hitting it, hitting yeah. that joke over and over. I, I, there's, I feel that there's ways to do it because I like when I like the initial reveal of like, OK, he's playing music and he's constantly talking over it. And then that goes for a little while. And then he brings in Victoria Jackson, who is playing some sort of like correspondent of some sort and she's in the studio and now they're both like just speaking over each other in, in a cacophony of sound hello tony it's spring one yes mo- welcome pam one i bet the- you got a lot of advice for uh, some of the garden growers this time of the year huh planting is keeping the soil fertile I find that Wake up, New York. We got Pamela Wyatt with us here on PLI. Times a week should be sufficient for your greens. Tilling the you can pick up her latest book, Green Thumb. is always important too. Now, 88 degrees, New York. Here she is, Miss Pamela Wyatt, with some advice on gardening. Thanks, Tony. 824 New York, Pamela Wyatt was our guest this morning. I'm Tony Trailer, and here's a favorite of mine from Billy Barra and the Beaters of At This Moment. But then the, she leaves and the sketch just kind of meanders for another minute until it just thankfully peters out. Uh, what, what, what are your feelings? I'm not too far off from you. I thought the idea was kind of funny because I, I think at that time we were probably at the zenith of like obnoxious DJ Poppins. I like, I think that's a real thing that people were probably annoyed by in like drive time radio or whatever. So it's it's a good starting point for a sketch. Uh, six minutes of sketch, absolutely not. <laughs> so that was the first <laughs> yeah. mistake. Like, figure out where you're going, get there quick, and then get out. What wasn't working for me was how awkward it got with Victoria Jackson in the mix. Because even though the idea of him cutting off a real person the same way that he would cut off a bed of music, even though there's a joke there in execution on live TV, the way that they just staged it was very awkward. It's like Victoria Jackson didn't quite know when to stop speaking and when to pick up again. And it just kind of got very confused at that point. So I feel like they had a good idea. I don't feel like the execution was quite there. Mm. Moving along. We've got the first of two uh, mini protest uh, monologues. This, this one is with uh, Jan hooks who uh, comes out onto uh, the main stage to say that, uh, Unlike Nora Dunn, who has decided to sit out the episode, her her form of protest is to uh, just give a lackluster performance uh, to the two sketches that she's been in. That's right, Lauren. Do you hear me, Lauren? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but I did not give 100% in the two sketches I was in. (laughs) No, I didn't. I really was not giving my all. And yet they still worked, don't you think? Oh, really? 
thank you, but that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant, it is. I mean, my talent is not the issue here, and all the talent in the world is not going to make Andrew Dice Clay go away. I mean, the answers are not easy, people. They're not. Actually, I think I can put it best with a song. Have you ever... This, this is, I don't know. This is weird because I think there's supposed to be a little bit of a concept where she starts, you know, she's like, well, the sketches were still good, though. And like the audience is like, yeah. And then I think it's supposed to be kind of like a, it just slowly becomes more about her. Right. As she starts to like sing a song and and Phil Hartman has to come in and stop her. But it it's all so short. This, uh, again, following after talk radio that that just uh, mines a, a very simple performance for uh, a millennia. This this seemingly had a, a place to go and uh, does it very quickly within a minute. And is like, wait, whoa, what, what was that? Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to offer because this just felt very awkward and uh, ill conceived to me. I, I don't think she was able to sell it. Mm-hmm. If there was a a good underlying bit that she was grasping for i don't think she got there i feel like if the idea was that she's trying to seem altruistic but she's really opportunistic like she's really trying to capitalize on nora dunn's absence and really use it as an opportunity to put her in the spotlight which kind of seems like what they were going for since it turns into this uh like musical number spotlight moment that is quickly shut down because it seems like that was the trajectory of it i feel like the writing and her delivery had to be way more obvious that that is what we're tracking here i just feel like it it was too uh ambiguous to really make that point well and then on top of that again more of this we need to comment on the controversy surrounding the show because we're just not confident that anyone's going to be having fun at this point like it, it feels again like them trying to do damage control and i just wanted to see snl so wasn't working for me yeah well, was Cool Might working for you? <laughs> We've got God. Andrew Dice Clay as a microscopic Jersey guy who uh, tries to impress his friends with his uh, stories of, of sexual conquest kid, and, right? and, and, and it's such. Like she's moaning like there's no tomorrow. Well, <laughs> yeah, but now I'm done. Oh, 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 hey. So anyway, I'm resting on a eyelid. She's screaming, more, more. Who's got some beer for me anyway? Come oh, on. I got it right here. Come on. Come on. Hey, easy, easy with that. Hey, yeah. come here. Come here. Come here. Come a little closer. <laughs> Bang, you Jacob. <laughs> so I really wanted to like this sketch, but I think that this was the moment where I kind of hit my Andrew Dice wall. Like this was where, okay, we've seen this character every time he's been on screen, basically. Uh, I, I could stomach an hour of it, but here we are. Uh, I would like to see you do something else now, please <laughs> get out of the leather jacket. Try. We know that you can do characters. We know that you have a history of being able to do impressions and, and, you know, performance, uh, do something else. That was what I was feeling. The sketch itself. I, I think it could have been amusing, but I think I was just out of it at this point. Yeah. And the, the t- technical, uh, things, around it where where he's like sort of off on on the side on on a blue screen so they can put him onto the little uh, stair step <laughs> yeah. as uh, his his friends kind of gather around him to to talk uh it it really throws off the timing uh, a little bit 
also it's just not terribly funny like it's just not no it's some it's it's someone said the mighty mites is kind of funny so let's mash that up with the one thing that we know andrew dice clay can do and it didn't really get them the returns that i think they were looking for i think there was supposed to be some amusement in watching a dog maul him but if that was the case that needed to be the end of the sketch like it's all this setup of this guy puffing himself up and he's the talk of the town and everybody like respects him and fears him he's just like he's the guy and he's just taken out in a second by a dog just randomly for no good reason like if that actually was the end of the sketch i would have been like yeah okay it's kind of kind of a little little morbid turn there that i can get on board with but uh it overstayed its welcome they tried the dog gag twice it fell apart and then the callback is him actually winning over the chick that was so incensed by being cat called at the beginning um it was trying for something but i just didn't need more uh greaser guido goomba fare from andrew dice clay at this point yeah, and I, I guess they would rework this idea into Tiny Elvis with, with Nick Cage, <laughs> if you remember that. And I think also Rob Schneider also played Tiny Elvis at one point, so I'm guessing sure. uh, also because uh, uh, Rob Schneider is uh, in, in the cast of uh, people in this, this sketch here. That oh, I wonder if this is his baby, right? Because this is one of the first times we saw him, too. Mm-hmm. And he's on the writing staff. So I wonder, it's close to the end of the season. We're wondering. We got a lot of people at the end of their contracts, like yep. Nora Dunn. Uh, I think this might be, let's give Rob a chance to see what he can bring. I don't think he gets any lines in, but uh, but certainly they, they gave him at least a chance to uh, you know be a part uh, right. of the fabric of his own sketch there. He didn't stick out like a sore thumb, and that's all you need to see from a featured player to to sign him up kind of a thing. Like, we already know he's got some talent. We hired him. We, we've seen what he can do behind the scenes. Let's just make sure he doesn't choke hardcore as a bit player, and then we know that we can at least elevate him and, and give him a chance next season. I think that's probably what this was. Mm. And and we should point out that the uh, the sketch does just kind of fall apart at the end because uh, oh. the dog is supposed to come and grab the doll a second time. And uh, the dog wants no no part of the sketch anymore and just kind of right, wanders right. off while it's, hey, hey, where's the dog? Where's the dog? And everybody just kind of freezes up. It's like, whoa. He wait. does the cardinal sin of commenting on it, not yeah. in the world, but he's, I'm supposed to be getting bit by a dog right now. You know, like that, that is, yeah, that's not a pro move. So yeah, this, no. this definitely, if it hadn't already lost me, that was not, <laughs> not a fantastic exit. No. Uh, up next, we get our second uh, musical performance. This this time, it's Julie Cruz. Uh, mm. This performance is actually not within the uh, the the digital rip that uh, you know you and I watched. And and if you go out onto the interwebs uh, and, and find this episode, uh, it's probably the most common one you're going to find. Uh, right. This this is not in that 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 rip. And I looked it up and just cracked up when I figured out what it is because it's Julie Cruz and she's performing the song Falling <laughs> from Twin Peaks. This is the theme from Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> is I was just bowled over because when you and I were talking about doing an episode, I was like, I got one. You want to do something from the early ni- early 1990s? 
let's do the Kyle McLaughlin episode, right. the, the season premiere of season 16. It's a great episode. You get Chris Rock and uh, Chris Farley uh, on their first episode. And, you know, I really remember it to be a great episode. And you constantly said no. And <laughs> who remembers Kyle McLaughlin? You just no, had a there? reboot of Twin Peaks, man. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I blew the call on that. I really did. I was looking for something scandalous, and I thought that this was our ticket. But you know what? I should have deferred <laughs> to a, a true SNL historian because <laughs> so, I, I was definitely out of my depth on uh, my early '90s fair. Yeah. So when I finally looked it up, we had to find it on Vimeo, and uh, oh my god, I just I cracked up when I saw what it was. I was like, "Holy crap, that's great! That that mm-hmm. that is a sign from the gods <laughs> right there." Um, I, I got to admit, I had never heard this song with lyrics mm-hmm. I, I did not know that this actually existed as a uh, as a full-length song out, outside of just the theme to Twin Peaks and uh, whew, I mean it's it's a fun enough song when it's you know 30 40 seconds intro to a weird ass show but man for four minutes it's kind of kind of put me asleep a little bit yeah yeah, my only note was this isn't going anywhere. You know, she's definitely trying to perform it good vocally, but she looks like she's in a sound booth, right? Like there's nothing on stage you can look to to really make this fun. Uh, the song itself doesn't really, you know, soar. No. Uh, so there's there's just, yeah, it, it's pretty mundane. Um, they had so much like sustain or chorus. They had something on her voice that was just making it very diffuse. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was a little little challenging to to stay with it till the end i i was bored yeah that's that's my final word on it yeah i can understand why they would have uh maybe pulled this as a last minute thing like hey twin peaks is new it's it's you know blowing up and we'll get that chick Mm -hmm. that sings the the theme song but synergy yeah synergy but like man (laughs) here at like you know 12 40 at night uh hearing this song it must have been just torture if you were trying to make it through this entire episode, you you went right. past Cool Might and and talk radio, and you land on Julie Cruz, and it's like. So I got a theory here. I got a theory here. Was Twin Peaks originally shown on NBC? I th- Can we say that with any kind of certainty? Oh man, I think it might have been ABC. Oh, okay. Well, that blows my theory out of the water. I, I could be. I could be wrong. Okay, can we uh, can we do a little bit of like really bad radio so I can look it up? Sure. ABC. Okay, never mind. My my theory is blown out of the water. Mm. My hunch was okay. It's an NBC property, so they're going to have no trouble with licensing the song. So it's a cheap get. She's a New York theater type, so getting her to come down and perform it, easy peasy. Mm-hmm. And you've got G Smith and the Saturday Night Band. Uh, backing her up so there's like nothing that they needed to do to fill their second musical number if they went with it so I thought that that's what it was it was let's just keep it simple let's pull in something that we've already got you know at arm's reach that we don't have to really worry about licensing on a Friday night or whatever uh, and go with that but you know what if it was on ABC then I don't know what I'm talking about (laughs) moving on we're we're hitting the end of the episode here we've got ridiculous bull a parody of the uh, hit me in the face scene from Raging Bull, where Bobby De Niro tells Joe Pesci to punch him in the face multiple times. And this one, you know, we just escalate that idea. 
we've got uh, it's him and uh, Lovitz, and, and Lovitz is playing the Pesci character, and he first beats him with a bat, and then a bowling ball, and then a sledgehammer, and then eventually we're getting to like the point where he's tossing a fridge on him. Still standing, Joey. Do me a favor, Joey. Pick up the bat, Joey. What? Pick it up, Joey. Crazy. I'm crazy, huh? I'm crazy, huh? Hit me with the bat, Joey. Hit you with the bat. Harder. 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 You see, Joey? Look at me, Joey. I'm still standing. You ain't never gonna get me down, Joey. You ain't never gonna get me down, Joey. Joey, you're my brother, right? Yeah. You wanna do me a favor? Pick up the bowling ball, Joey. That's ridiculous. Hit me with the bowling ball, Joey. Come on, let's go to the game. Joey, I'm, I'll kill you, Joey. I'm telling you, you're going to make me snap, Joey. Hit me with the bowling ball. But, Jake, Hit I me. really don't. Smash my skull in, Joey. Smash my skull in with yeah. the bowling ball. Harder, 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 you see, Joey? I have a Where feeling me, that this sh- eh? they wanted this towards the top of the episode because it's so broad and so goofy that it feels like it would have been a, a pre-update uh, selection. Okay. But, I mean, again, once you get the idea of what's going on, they they try to escalate it, but it doesn't doesn't pull the rug out from under you at all. I mean, you're just like, okay, now it's just going to, okay, bowling ball, okay, oh, sledgehammer. So it's going to be, okay, now he hits him with the sledgehammer. Okay, now microwave. Okay, now he hits him with the microwave. Right. And... Boy, this gets torturous, <laughs> especially since the the rip that we have uh, really starts to jump and, and the, the tape or something really starts to get uh, eaten up here. So even watching it is just like, oh, God, this is headache inducing. Yeah, it's a little little challenging uh, there at the end to watch. Um, yeah, it really is just a silly idea for a sketch that didn't have legs. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. I think they probably thought it did probably watched it and dress realized, uh, we built the sets, we built all the breakaway toys. Let's just throw it at the end. And if we got time, we'll put it in. Right. Um, yeah, it, for me, it got a little bit funnier as it got more ridiculous, but I think that they just kept going with it way too long because one or two breakaway things like the breakaway bat or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a little over the top. That's kind of charming that they're taking the raging bull thing and, and, ramping it up but okay again 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 with nothing new other than changing the prop that's that's not funnier because you're doing it more it's just more mm-hmm. and that's really where it lost me yep yeah certainly a thing that uh 90s snl did not not always <laughs> hit upon is is the uh more is not always funnier yeah i think they always try to come back around that that whole concept of like it's funny and then it isn't funny and then you do it enough that it wraps back around to being funny and that is so difficult to actually pull off and I, they try it so many damn times and fail so often that it, it's why why did you guys constantly use that as a as a crutch <laughs> Somebody had to have a better idea that week than just like, hey, what about that raging bull scene? And uh, we just do that. But it's like, you know, other things. It's tough to figure out from the first draft of a sketch on Wednesday, really what that's going to look like on screen. Like that you just you got to go with your gut. Sometimes you find it. Sometimes you don't. But yeah, this one, I think maybe was funnier when they were rehearsing it at the table because he does a good job of being the I don't know, Brooklyn boxer, whatever. Like he, he plays that part. And every time he goes back to try and cajole his brother into doing it again, like he's selling it. He's trying to 
uh, really be that character and hold things together. He, he does a, a reasonably good job of getting to the end of that sketch. I have a feeling at the desk, it, it probably seemed like it was going to be more amusing than it just turned out to be. Yeah. And, and I guess this is, even though it, it's definitely within his wheelhouse, this is the one time where we get him stepping out of the, the Andrew dies clay persona, right? He's, just kind of tapping into Bobby De Niro. So it's, it's not like it's that far afield. It's not a big stretch. Right? But, right. And that's maybe another uh, reasoning of why I think it would have been, you know, pre update is to kind of like, Oh, here's different shades of Andrew Dice Clay. And yeah, I think him and Lovitz, they, they try and sell it. They you know, even I think at one point Lovitz uh, kind of gets an extra hit on him with, with like the sledgehammer or something. And there's a little bit of riffing there. Yeah. He turns around, he's walking away and I think Lovitz says, this is tank and maybe I can mix it up and, you know, put a little life into it. And yeah. It doesn't really work. And then it's a 10 to one, Yeah, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. And uh, we get our, our last little, uh, little bit of the show. It's our, our second protest uh, monologue this time right. from Kevin Nealon. Who uh, his form of protest is that uh, he's only going to be in three sketches, but he's going to kill it in every one of those three sketches. <laughs> and uh, isn't that the better valid. way to go about it? I've chosen a different means of expressing my outrage. Tonight, I am refusing to appear in all but three sketches. <laughs> I feel that by doing only three sketches and really scoring in those three, I would make more of a statement than by appearing in six or seven sketches in small supporting roles. Now, I know this stance may not be popular, but as a comedian, I've never particularly cared about popularity. I just want you to like me. I'm Kevin Nealon. <laughs> if he hadn't had Jan Hooks as sort of the lead-in to this uh, concept, you know, a little aside moment, um, I might have liked it better but I didn't really love what she was doing. So I thought, Oh my goodness, they're doing it again. Like really do we, we need to try and make this joke a second time with a different player. Uh, so take it or leave it. I think Neilan tried. I think it was slightly better delivered and made a little more sense than Jan hooks, but still it just wasn't something that I needed to see. Yeah. At least it didn't wander uh, with its concept yeah. like Jan's did. And I, I like the idea that he has chosen to take less screen yeah. time, uh, something that's completely out of his hands. Praise me for this supposed sacrifice. Right. Yeah. And, uh, well, there you go. That's the episode. Andrew dice, clay, Julie Cruz and Spanish boys. Okay. Well, let me, let me put on my, uh, podcast host hat here. Okay. Let's, uh, let's run through my review thing that we do. Uh, moment of the night. What do you got? Moment of the night. I'm going to go with Dana Carvey as Frank Zappa. It's <laughs> it's just so silly. And I think an impression that Dana only did like once or twice. But uh, just as a big Zappa fan, uh, it gave me much joy in a fairly joyless episode. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. John Lovitz pops a zit <laughs> at the update desk. Uh gross out humor uh the the prop functioned perfectly mm -hmm. it it was good it was a good little dumb thing that uh won me over so i i can give it to that best overall sketch Ooh, best overall sketch um 
I guess I'm going to have to give it to the cold open, the, the Guardian Devil cold open. It, it had sure. the best concept and followed that through line uh, to the end. Had some nasty digs at its own cast and had some funny jokes in there and didn't overstay its welcome. So that's always good as well. So I'm going to give it to that. The, the cold open. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm on board with that. You're right. You're absolutely right. It was the best way they could have got into the show. It was a little disarming. It kind of made you like Andrew Dice Clay a little bit more than uh, you maybe a lot of people would have assumed that they would be able to uh, getting into the show. And uh, yeah, it commented on the controversy in a fun and clever way, which is not something they were able to sustain throughout the show. So this may have been the high watermark for the show and it happened pre-credits. Yeah, I never, I feel like I never say that, that the cold open is the highlight of the show, but Mm. I mean, man, here we are. Well, for what it's worth, it's an era of SNL where you didn't have to comment on politics every week for the cold open. So they could be a little more adventurous. Uh, It's nice that this particular writing staff was able to think in that vein and uh, find these clever ways to get into the show. I think it helps a lot. Uh, And that's probably one of the biggest challenges to modern SNL is how they've slotted the cold open almost exclusively for politics now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, you've got me wistful for, for times where <laughs> the cold open could start with something other than, than politics. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. So we did MVP. We did best sketch. Oh, did we, we didn't do MVP. Oh no, we didn't do MVP. We did best moment. We did best sketch. My next question would have been MVP who takes it. Who who takes it? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it to Lovitz. Yeah. He's uh, probably the most uh, prominent cast member throughout the uh, episode, and huge part of the cold open. Is that he's annoying man, and by <laughs> God, he's he's trying trying something to to put ridiculous bull over. So. You know, for for an episode where maybe not everybody was trying their hardest, John John was still giving his all. Yeah, he was a part of pretty much everything that I found amusing about this show. So I'll go with that, too. I think it's pretty obvious there really isn't much else that stands out that you can really point to and say there was a player that kind of rose above the week, uh, except him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on a scale of classic, great, typical... Oh no, decent. Weak or train wreck. I don't even know my own rating. How would you rate this vintage episode of SNL? Hmm. Boy, this one gets so close to a train wreck, but <laughs> I think it pulls itself out just in the nick of time to just be weak. Okay. Yeah, there's there's few saving graces here in some weird, interesting moments like people protesting the monologue and and just the whole vibe around the show is certainly a unique one that you don't see all the time. And yeah, it very obviously could have been a train wreck, but I think they pull out of it just <laughs> enough to not bottom out. It's not as bad as, say, the Steven Seagal episode or, or sure. that, that would happen the year after, like where they really just threw their hands up <laughs> and said, well, you know, whatever. Yeah. Is it one o'clock yet? Um, okay. So I'm a little torn because I got two kind of competing thoughts here. One is I really didn't hate it. And because I'm totally 
ambivalent about Andrew Dice Clay. I didn't come into it with any baggage that was already kind of like setting me off. So uh, I wasn't cold on it going into it. And I kind of want to grade it on an era curve, like say, how does it stack up to SNL of that era? Because if you stack it up to SNL of today, the pacing, the length of sketches, the uh, you know, other production limitations of that era do drag it down. It is a slower paced show, but that was typical of SNL in that era. So if you're grading it on a bit of a, an era curve, then I think that this one kind of gets into decent territory, not even not a great show by any stretch, but I feel like there was a handful of moments, particularly in weekend update. There was two really good features. The cold open was surprisingly charming for that kind of host and that kind of a, you know, swirling controversy around the show. Mm. Uh, and even the monologue I liked a lot more than you, I think. Um, oh, right, yeah. And then, and then the, the standard sketch fair throughout the evening, it was hit or miss, but it had its moments too. So I think that there's like almost enough to say as a, Late 80s, very early 90s outing of SNL. It was pretty typical, like pretty middle of the road, but not particularly weak. So if you're doing it that way, I would say I would just barely veer on the side of decent over weak. But if you want to hold it up to what they can do today and how fun some pre-tapes can be, like this was pretty much pre-tape devoid. Oh, true. Yeah. Um so like there's a version of SNL that's way more entertaining than this overall. And it's very weak when you compare it to what SNL can soar to in the modern era. But I don't think that's the right way to go about grading a vintage episode. So if I'm just looking at the other 1990 era episodes, I think it's barely decent. So that's where I'm going to land. Well, there we go. That's it. Yeah. Um, one last thing, I, I gotta say that I do find it interesting that that you know we have Nora Dunn stepping out of this week for for the misogyny and uh, bad vibes of Andrew Dice Clay, and seemingly gave an opening for David Spade and Rob Schneider to make their mark <laughs> and and eventually uh, do the same for SNL. I mean, it would only be a couple years later that uh, people like Janine Garofalo would. would have a disastrous run on the show and step away just going, wow, that was, that was a mess. There's a bunch of homophobic weirdo nutcases in there that are barely getting their job done. And, uh, it's, it's almost funny that Nora Dunn kind of stepping out of this week <laughs> may have given these guys their opening to uh, put their foot in the door and, and march the show almost to that. Well, that's a great narrative. Like if there was ever an SNL mini series or like cable series where they could uh, fictionalize the show, that would be a really great through line, you know, of uh, this drama leading, you know, into the next era and it's sort of being, uh, you know, a bizarre things come full circle for Nora Dunn kind of a thing. Um, that's a, a charming idea. David Spade, Rob Schneider, they'd already been with the show for at least a, a season, if not more. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, I, I mean, like, I think the reality of the situation is they probably would have, if they hadn't gotten screen time, I think they were already being vetted and looked at and probably going to be bumped up regardless. The show knows when contracts are coming up and they know kind of where they want to take the ensemble. I don't know if Nora Dunn genuinely has the power to dramatically impact an era of SNL, but uh, it certainly would be a good device to launch a, it's a wonderful life type 
sketch digression <laughs> to explore it, see what the show would have been if Nora Dunn had stuck around and, right. and continued to shepherd the show. Uh, yeah, so who knows? We can always speculate. I have a feeling that the 90s were going to be the 90s with or without Nora Dunn, and I think Farley and Sandler and Spade were going to hit no matter what. So that's yeah. that's my personal take, but charming thought. I like it. Yeah. I would love to see that fan fiction. <laughs> Oh, my, my podcast is, is nothing but crazy fan <laughs> theories and uh, my, my own narrative of the show. Sure. So, yeah, I love I love imposing meaning on things that are really just a happenstance. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> then that that is the episode, folks. So if you enjoyed it, uh, you can find my show that week in SNL on, on all your various podcasting devices. You can find us on Twitter at that week in SNL and also on Facebook. If you want to visit that graveyard of a, of a page, it's there. <laughs> and uh, by the time this drops, we will be on the cusp of, of returning uh, for our second season of our, our show where we will. Uh, <gasps> oh, can I get the exclusive here? Do you guys, have you announced what you're doing for your next season? Like what? Are you just doing rando episodes? Or are you going to cover a whole season? We are, we are doing we are doing random episodes this time. Okay. So if people want right. to go back, our, our first season we covered uh, season twenty one, which was the the first season for uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Daryl Hammond and and that whole cast. But uh, this time to keep us from going insane and, and maybe getting more crotchety than we intended. Uh, we we are bouncing around to various eras and uh, various episodes. So we'll be coming back on uh, September 29th with the season 10 premiere, which uh, had no host. And the, the musical guest hmm. uh, was, was Thompson Twins. That was the season that had... Uh, Martin Short and Billy Crystal and, and Chris Gast. So the, the first episode, I guess they thought that all the incoming people were, were more than enough to get people to tune in. So they had uh, no host. So yeah, Billy Crystal does the monologue, right? He just does a little mm-hmm. bit of stand up or something. Yeah, it does yeah, some stand up. Right. Remember yeah. that. So that's an interesting episode. Uh, speaking of pre-tapes where we had uh, pretty much none in this episode, I, I believe that might be the most pre-taped episode I can think of. There's like six yeah. uh, in that episode, so it's, it's that pretty was a, interesting. A season of attempted reinvention. They were trying to mm-hmm. figure out what the show was going to look like moving forward, and you see a lot of seams in the production. It's not yeah. what you'd call a cohesive season. Um, yeah, well, that's going to be interesting. Uh, do you have any other on your shortlist that that? I can find out about like now I'm just basically fanboying, but I'd love to know if you guys have like at least two or three mapped out that you know you're doing at this point. Oh, we do. Uh, you can expect uh, something from season two, the Eric Idle episode, which is uh-huh. a uh, big favorite of mine. Sure. Uh, it will be uh, what else? Season seven, the Donald Pleasance and fear episode is in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that will be our first three. I don't want to reveal too much here, but that that will be the first block of episodes uh, in September, November will be uh, those three. So please look forward to it. (laughs) Yes. All right. I've sufficiently pumped you for information. Um, Awesome. You can find my podcast at snlafterparty.fm or uh, anywhere else that better podcasts can be found. Typically, significantly higher in the search rankings than that week in SNL. 
Mm. Mm. I knew you had to get a dig in. <laughs> yeah, just I a little bit. Had to get a dig in. I'm pretty sure you called me out for being particularly salty on one podcast, and so I just I feel like <laughs> I can't go out without swinging a little bit. Oh, yeah, I probably did. I probably yeah. did. Yeah, no, I'm quite sure you did. No. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something I do. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, you want to end with the the piece we're out of here? Sure. All right. All right, folks, that's it. Peace. We out of here. And that's a cast. (laughs) Thanks to my partner in crime, Andrew Dick. You can connect with Andrew on Twitter at That Week in SNL. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Sam Bowers, Jonathan Jordan, and Aaron and Trader. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get early, ad-free access to each new podcast episode, as well as many other exclusive member rewards. You can learn more about all the ways you can support the cast at snlafterparty.fm. We'll be back soon to cover the latest news and speculation in the run-up to Season 44. Until then, this has been Episode number 53 of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night, and have a pleasant tomorrow. returns next week for the final show of the season with host Candace Bergen and special musical guest Mark Knopfler and the Notting Hillbillies. I still don't understand whether Nora was here or not because I announced her at the beginning, but then she wasn't on the show. Oh, well, nobody tells me anything. Until then, this is Don Pardo saying, this is Don Pardo saying goodnight. Behold. What is that? That is Nora Dunn. (laughs) Because you were never born, she was here that night and was accidentally crushed by Sinead O'Connor's amplifier. That's awful. O'Connor felt so terrible, she never sang again. Uh, That's too bad. She was a cute bald (laughs) chick.